Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. This is the bell ring. That's how that works. Uh, you have a giant packet of paper. It says eight on the back. Uh, we're going to skip some things. But, uh, but I wanted the information to still be there. Um, this is technically two classes uh, that I did on the Thursday morning set of things. Uh, there are technically two classes. The first one was Moses and Joshua. The second one was uh, David, all of it concerning the giants and all of this. Uh, David and then going into the New Testament and demons, things like that. So I'm <laughs> combining that into uh, one thing here. So we'll, we'll skip over some stuff. Uh, but that information is there, hopefully, for... I, I hope you don't go home and go, it's a good class, and then just throw it in the trash. Uh, but that you look at it uh, later and do a little more reading and all of this and uh, study further. Uh, I want us to be reminded a little bit of where we've been. Uh, last week, we took kind of a detour in the God Among the Gods, is what we called that lesson of those opposed to God, uh, these beings opposed to God and how he interacted with them. Also, just people's ideas within these other cultures about their gods and how uh, the God of Israel shifted a lot of their thinking uh, in that interaction uh, with Naaman. Uh, and then we also dealt with spiritual beings on the side of God and getting to see uh, some of that playing out in that divine council setting with uh, Micaiah and his uh, his vision of, of, of all those things. So uh, we kind of took a detour with those things. I wanted to get us back to really Genesis 6 and why that's such an important uh, issue. Uh, the last giant packet we had that ultimately led to a Q&A two weeks later uh, was the Genesis 6 lesson. Uh, I, it, I think it's very important that we understand that as being a spiritually oriented event, uh, that was a problem for the creation because ultimately God at that moment, things had been so corrupted and bad uh, and were so far beyond the tipping point that he said we're going to start with functionally uh, a, a new earth, a new creation, uh, which is what Noah gets to inherit and then they promptly lose all of that again. Because people are dumb. Uh, we still do that. So, uh, Genesis 6, 2, and 4. This, uh, at the very beginning of your page there. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose, or as their women. Uh, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Uh, this idea of Nephilim, these giant things, they're uh, really uh, these people known for fighting and being accomplished in war, which is antithetical to what God is trying to do in his creation. He's a God of life. And so these things encouraging, what if we killed and conquered and sought power for ourselves, are directly opposed to, uh, to God and his way of doing things. So we're going to look at their corruption and how it spread and how God dealt with those things. That's where we're going today as much as we can. Uh, okay, skipping down to the, the headline that says Nephilim there on page one. Uh, they go by many names. You'll have several verse references here. Uh, I do want to highlight that bolded line in Numbers 13. Uh, there we saw the Nephilim. 
Okay, this is Israel coming into scouting out the promised land. And they see all the giants and go, there, there's no way. You know, they, they have Nephilim there. They have these giant things there. Their cities go up to the sky, all of this stuff, which is very Tower of babel uh, language of cities going up to the skies, uh, up to the heavens. Uh, but notice what Moses does for us here uh, with the little parenthetical statement. The sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. Uh, and so we get Moses giving us a very helpful connecting idea here of later on they might be called something else, specifically Anak or Anakim. Uh, and Moses wants us to know they're all the same. Th- those are more of those things uh, continuing to exist. Uh, and so your next one there, they're called Nephilim. They're also called Anakim. Uh, and that's the connector that we have in Numbers. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 1, uh, that's another uh, retelling of this event, of them going into the Promised Land, and they say they've got the sons of the Anakim there. Okay, well, those are these giant fighting things. Okay, flip the page, top of page 2. Going good. At this pace, yeah, we'll be done about 10 minutes. So, that's great. Uh, top of page 2. Uh, the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. So now we have another connector word, the Emim. They're similar. Uh, they're tall beings and known for fighting and warring and all this. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. So, so we get a couple here in Deuteronomy 2 where... We already know that Nephilim and Anakim are connected. And now Moses shows us in Deuteronomy 2 uh, that Emim and Anakim are connected, which means they're connected to Nephilim as well, uh, as is the phrase or the title uh, Rephaim uh, is another one. Uh, Nephilim, Anakim, Rephaim are the three big ones, the three main names. But uh, if we skip past the, the Rephaim part for a moment... Uh, You have other terms there in the middle of page two. Uh, Amim, as we noticed. Kaftarim, because those are giants living in Kaftar. So, Kaftarim. That's a very creative naming there. Uh, That's what they did with it. Uh, Avim uh, is connected to Rephaim there in the text. And then Zamzumim, which sounds cool. Uh, But those are all just local, regional terms for these things. What does that tell us? Well, what it tells us is what Genesis 6 told us. They were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, and they were such a problem that God said, we're pulling the plug on this and resetting everything. Uh, They're an issue. They're a really big problem. They need to be gone completely, so let's flood this whole thing. Well, here they are again, and they're all over the place. Uh, they, they are so all over the place that there are regional terms for these things wherever they may be found out. So when Moses is taking Israel through the wilderness and all of this stuff, they are encountering places where these things exist. They are aware of them uh, because when they see them in the promised land, they go, those things are there. They know what they're called. They know why they are a problem. So they're already familiar with these things uh, and they... They know what they're capable of doing, uh, and so they have fear, but they exist all over the place here. 
Uh, and you can see with the, the Rephaim under that heading there, uh, you have uh, some things that we need to discuss or highlight. Uh, they are noted as being kings in a number of places. Makes sense. Uh, first of all, uh, they're highly encouraging of combat and gathering power. So they've got a thirst for, for being the ones in charge. Uh, so that makes sense. They have a lot of ambition towards ruling over people. Of course they do. Uh, but alongside all of that, uh, if uh, it's not like they were really voting as much on who should be in charge of our nation. Uh, but let's say that they did. Uh, and you had very tall giant who you know is capable of mass destruction. And then me. Who are you voting for to lead your people? Uh, yeah. This guy right here. And then I probably die for even thinking that I could run again. Like that, that's who's going to lead the people. Well, what happens when you have somebody who is opposed to the creator of the universe uh, that wants to seek power for itself, that is encouraging, as the Jewish people have taught uh, in some of the references we've read out of the intertestamental books, Enoch and other places. Uh, when those people are in charge, what happens to the nation as a result? not being led in very good directions, uh, being led to be selfish and harm others, all of this sort of stuff. So here's what we've got. We've got spiritual beings that have been placed by God to lead the nations in justice and righteousness, and they aren't doing it. You also have on the ground uh, physical manifestations of things that should not exist because it is a twisting of God's good creation. And they're leading the people in a bad direction, uh, and wars and fights and all of this, not promoting justice and righteousness. All got to go. All of it's got to be dealt with. We know what Psalm 82 says, because we've been there a lot. God's going to deal with those things and put them where they need to be. Uh, but we also see as we go through the, the, the text, God's dealing with those things that are here on the earth. The, the twisted product of the angel's forsaking their proper position uh, and creating these things uh, with humans. Okay. Would those things not have believed Noah about God flooding the earth when Noah's preaching about it? I, I don't think they care. There, there's something about these things. It's just power. They're going for power. A lot of that has to do with their origin. Uh, there is something to be said for, uh, well... Uh, we, we'll get into that in a second. Um, uh, they're very much concerned with their own stuff uh, because who can challenge them? You know, there's very much a uh, ego complex that seems to be because they're they're the kings, they're the fighters, they're the all of this, they're the conquerors, uh, and so they they don't see themselves as needing to be concerned with that god uh, because they would also be as part of the nation group worshiping their gods too. I mean, the whole idea of being part to God, which is why you are the king, is very common uh, historically. That's what these things are looking at. Oh, I, am, I am here because I am part divine spiritual being, so I have the right to rule uh, and all of that. So I don't think they care. Um, about any of that uh, as far as the flood and all of this. Okay, uh, other cultures in Nephilim, middle of page two. Uh, the Philistines, we know that's where Goliath is at. Gath is a Philistine city. Uh, 
Uh, they are seafaring people uh, connected to the Aegean Sea. The sea people originally invaded from the Aegean to the coast of Canaan and Egypt. This is the thought about where the Philistines came from. Uh, they're uh, ultimately uh, traveling and all this. Their origin point was from Kaftor, a place which the Philistines are associated with. So the Philistines and this place called Kaftor are connected, uh, and we know that there are giant beings there, so much so that they actually are called Kaftorim, as we mentioned before. Uh, so the Philistines have a connection particularly to these giant things, uh, which... I wonder why the Philistines are so often brought up as really bad individuals. Yeah, it's because those things are there uh, helping to lead them in a, a very bad direction. Um, in Greece, though, uh, in ancient Greece, rulers and kings were given the title of uh, onyx. Uh, but you look at the English spelling of that. We're, we're a letter away from uh, our English of onakim, which is super interesting. Instead of the X, put a K there. Um, that's not me reaching. That's what these what these things were. That's the word for ruler or king. It is also the the term used to designate some of the heroes of ancient Greece, the warring conqueror fighters that were also part divine and also uh, many of them, you know, just bigger, taller, stronger than everybody else. What a weird coincidence uh, with all of that. Uh, it's thought by some uh, that this term. Annex, onyx is connected to Anakim uh, as well. I actually have a disc golf disc, disc that says onyx on it, uh, which I think about giants every time, and then I throw it poorly and remember that I'm not one of those things. Uh, okay, Egypt. Uh, one text from the period of Ramses II says, The narrow valley is dangerous with Bedouin hidden under the bushes. Some of them are four or five cubits from their noses to their heel, fierce of face, their hearts are not mild, and they do not listen to uh, Weedling. Uh, you have a description of, we've got some tall things waiting to do some damage here in these places, be careful. Uh, and that's in Egypt. So there seems to be Egyptian writing about these things. Hey, you, there, there might be this feeling of, well, hold on, but those things aren't inspired, and so we need to have, yes, have some measure of, uh, be careful how you're reading those things, sure. But like the flood accounts or um, all, all sorts of various animals and other things, when you start to see similar accounts throughout completely different cultures, that kind of brings up this question. And I know, I know you'll deal with that in your apologetics class. Um, uh, when you start to see repeated stories over different cultures, you go, maybe, maybe there's something to all of this. Uh, aside from the fact that it is mentioned within the text of the Bible, which should be enough, but then we get more. So, uh, top of page three there, Mesopotamia, the ancient Babylonian epic titled Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, features a giant, uh, he's two-thirds god, not half, a two-thirds god figure named Gilgamesh in his quest against the gods, because that's how it always is. The Babylonian god Marduk was also said to be superhuman in size. Uh, Epic of Gilgamesh also has a flood account <laughs> narrative and all of it. There's just a lot of similarities and things like that. But you have in all these other cultures um, semi-divine beings that are bigger, stronger, better warrior, all this stuff than everybody else, and they end up being the rulers. Not just in the Bible, but within these other cultural texts and things. Uh, and so we look at that and go, man, these things are everywhere. They have a lot of power, 
and that power is not being used in the right way. That's the summary. Let's jump into Moses. Uh, page three, midway down, Moses and the Nephilim. All right. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, we are shown the good, functioning as intended, that's what that means, uh, creation, everything going according to plan. As quickly as we are introduced to the perfect creation, we get introduced to a corrupter uh, that uh, speaking through a serpent. Again, I think a spiritual being working through that. As Moses leads the people to the promised land, he speaks about the Anakim and the mission of God to the place where they are. Okay, uh, Deuteronomy 9, 1 and 2. Very important word. A hero Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven. Tower of Babel, guys. Think, think about tower up to heaven. Think, be thinking about that. Uh, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Uh, so these things have a reputation. Israel is aware of their reputation and their cities, their fighting, all of that sort of stuff. That's in Deuteronomy 9 uh, as they're making their way into the promised land. But Moses says we go into the promised land. We've got a mission. Uh, we've, we've got this mission from God to go in and dispossess uh, nations greater, greater and mightier uh, than we are. That word's important. Uh, it is the negative form of the word inherit. So uninherit. Uh, they are going to take away the inheritance from these beings that have come in and taken this area, these nations that have come in and taking it uh, and taken it. God has said that doesn't belong to them, it belongs to you. You are going to be the agent that dispossesses their place here uh, in the promised land. Okay, uh, these battles and things we see at the end of Deuteronomy and into Joshua and all of this is not. Uh, God just didn't care about any of those people because they weren't Israelites, so he said, just go ahead and kill them and wipe them out. No, absolutely not it. They have existed for all of this time, going further and further down the sinful track, far away from God because of the leadership of a number of things. But by the time Israel gets there, these are deeply, wildly sinful cultures that are in, in that place. And Israel is being used as the source of justice. To got to get that out of the creation. God does not is not interested in uh, unrighteousness. He is not interested in the lack of justice. He's going to bring order to that eventually. He will wait and be patient, and they exist for a long time before God says it's time for them to be punished for their wrongdoing. Hey, this is not God waking up on the wrong side of the bed. This is not God not caring about Gentiles. Uh, this is God using Israel to exercise justice, just like he'll use Babylon to bring justice to Israel, just like he'll use Persia to bring justice to Babylon, etc., etc. That's what this is. Anyway, they're going in to dispossess, uh, to uninherit these people. That word is the one that's used in Psalm 82, right at the very end. Uh, rise God, let's see, I want to make sure I, I say it right. Uh, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the hope that they have for what Yahweh is going to do. All of this creation, because he's creator of the world, but he's working with this one nation. But they're, he's the creator of the world. <laughs> Isn't this whole thing yours? Well, yes, but also... No, because there are things that are leading people away from me. 
Now, they have this expectation of God bringing it all back because it's his, because it's all his creation. And so they have this hope of rise God, uh, judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. Well, this is part of that work that God is taking Israel through and they are going to send out the things that have tried to usurp their authority uh, and not just send out. They're going to destroy many of these things. Uh, some of them get pushed out. Some of them get completely wiped out. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about it in a moment. Or we won't, and we'll have to do it next week, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you also have Deuteronomy 32, which, if you don't remember that, it's because Ryan taught that class, and that's not my fault. <laughs> uh, Deuteronomy 32, uh, with the Tower of Babel. Or my notes were bad. <laughs> that's probably it. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, Jacob his allotted heritage. And so you have this uh, God at one point divided his creation, Tower of Babel, um, but that is going to be reclaimed. There's, there's this hope of God bringing it all back together to him. Israel is part of that work to dispossess those things and bring God's people into uh, that area. Okay. Um, later in Joshua, there at the bottom of page three, uh, we're given a summary of some of Israel's conquests under the leadership of Moses. Moses fought these things. Moses and Israel fought these things. It's not just Joshua. Joshua and Israel, they're going to do a lot of work <laughs> with these things. Uh, but Moses destroys some too. These are the kings of the land, okay, kings of the land, whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land. That's our inherit word. Uh, beyond the Jordan, toward the sunrise, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edri and ruled over Mount Hermon, and Seleka and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites. And we'll skip through there to the part where it says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, the people of Israel defeated them. Going into page four. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So you can go look up a 12 tribes map and all that and see where we're talking about. Uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh there uh, and what area this is. Uh, but Og, king of Bashan, is a guy that's noted. Uh, that's all important because Bashan will be important later, like New Testament important later, uh, as well as Mount Hermon. That's an important place too. And again, we've got mountain stuff happening here. Um, uh, that mountain will be very important here in just a moment. We'll talk about why. Uh, but again, we're presented with the idea of possession. God's reclaiming the creation back from the corrupting forces of the Nephilim through Israel. King Og is noted, he's a king, number one, so he has all this power over a large area. And two, he's called a remnant of the Rephaim, but he is taken out. Uh, we get dimensions of his bed and all that stuff listed too. Like this is a big thing um, that they take out. Uh, and it would have been a big deal for them to conquer this individual and his nation and area and all of this uh, of Bashan. Uh, we'll save Bashan for later. Let's talk about the mountain though. Uh, we're told what he ruled over, involving a number of locations, but most important for our study uh, is Mount Hermon. This is the mountain uh, that the Jews believed the angels made that covenant. 
against God uh, with themselves. This is from 1 Enoch 6 and verse 6. And they were all in all 200, so they think, you know, hundreds of angels rebelled, uh, who descended in the days of Jared. He's in Noah's lineage. That's when they're thinking all this stuff is happening. Uh, the, on the summit of Mount Hermon, and they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual impre- uh, imprecations upon it. So they're thinking about all these rebellious things. That's where it happened on top of a mountain. In particular, they're saying this mountain. And the thought might be, yeah, but how do they know that? And what? Okay, but that's, that's their thought process. Does that matter? Well, it matters somewhat, uh, but we'll find out that this word the, for the mountain, Hermon, is actually very important uh, as a Hebrew word. And the fact that they have a uh, connecting belief to this mountain, which is in this place, this area of Bashan and this valley and this, this area here, all that's going to be very important for their theology about how God works, what God is doing here uh, with all of these things. Uh, and we'll keep uh, pressing on here. Okay, so Moses conquers Og. Uh, Moses and Israel conquer Og. And I think there are a couple others, but not a ton. When we get into the promised land, that's where that's where the work is done. And it's Joshua and the people of Israel. Okay, middle of page four. We're doing well. Or maybe you're like, I, you're going too fast. I don't know what you're saying. Just read the paper again. Uh, slowly, and then <laughs> Joshua and the people of Israel are noted as taking out the Anakim as they work their way through the Promised Land. Uh, Joshua 11 is a text that's kind of buried for us. Joshua is one of those books where we read several of the first chapters because we get Jericho, and that's a pretty cool section, and all that. So, you know, so there's some of those things, and then we skip to the end. The uh, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Uh, yeah, as for me and my house, we will start, we, we love that verse. I've got a coffee mug with it, two of them, I think. Uh, it's right there. I think it's on the wall somewhere in my house. Like That's one of those verses that we like. It's a good verse. It's great. Uh, we kind of skip over the middle part for good reason, because a lot of those chapters are, and this tribe got this area, and this tribe got that area, and this one got this area. And so that's it's hard to read. Uh, it is. It's important, and it matters. Hard to read. Uh, and that's okay. I'm not going to get struck down because I said that. It is hard to read, but it is important as well. Joshua 11 is sitting in the middle of the book there. <laughs> Joshua came at that time, cut off the Anakim. Notice where they are, repeatedly. From the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all of the hill country of Judah. And from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Okay, a couple things here. All of these beings are located in the hill country. Go ahead. When we talk about giants being bad, were there any good giants listed in the Bible? No. No, there were not. Uh, Although Saul was considered tall, he was supposed to be about six foot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's one of those yeah, which would have been really tall for like really tall for that day. I think the average height is something like five four, five six. So somebody who's six four, you know, yikes! That that guy looks huge. Uh, David, I guess, was not that tall, but 
It, he didn't look king material, but that's what they're looking for with kings. A tall giant, this guy could lead an army for us. That's not what God wants for his people, uh, but that's what the people wanted for themselves. Uh, but any, at, at any rate, no good giants uh, mentioned. I didn't think so. Uh, okay, so notice they're all in the hill country. A couple reasons. Uh, having a city built on a hill, good for fortifications. Uh, ask Ryan about that. Uh, his devotional on Jericho and all of that. Good description of why you would build on a city. Uh, but also, you, we, we've got Tower of Babel in our mind. We've got this whole building up to the heaven, making a name for ourselves kind of thing in mind and all of this. Uh, we also have the benefit of knowing that the altars that are scattered around Israel when they go into false idol worship, that those are called the high places. Like, why is there always this emphasis on height, this things going upwards and all of this? Uh, those altars they built and called the high places are many mountains, functioning as a mountain, something that's reaching up towards God, because that's where God is. He's up there, and if we want to ascend to him, we need to build upward that whole thing. Uh, these things built up so that they could make a name for themselves. So they got these massive cities up on the hill, trying to go as high as they can, all that stuff. But they're always in the hill country. The hill country are the places where these, where the text says, devote them to destruction. That's not every nation. You go read through Joshua, what you're going to find is the phrase, devote to destruction. You're also going to find the phrase, drive out. Those are not the same thing. <laughs> it's clearly not the same thing. And get them out of here. If I said, drive, drive these cows out of here, you would go, okay, we need to, we need to you know, send them somewhere else. If I said, devote those cows to destruction. You would, uh, you would excuse me, what did you say about these cows? What am I going to do to these cows? Uh, <laughs> devote them to destruction. Uh, we know what that means. Like that's a, that is a wipe these things out. Uh, and this is one of the, I understand that there might be, <laughs> there might be an issue in looking at this and going, wow, that's death and God bring it. Yes. He's bringing the consequences of their sin on them. That sounds less bad to us. That's what's happening. He's bringing the consequences of their choosing to live in rebellion to God. That leads to death. That's what happens. Uh, and if we can't accept that reality, then grace becomes far less important. Sacrifice of Jesus becomes far less important. Death is a natural consequence of sinful behavior. Uh, and that's what these nations are involved in. These giants in particular are not redeemable. Uh, they are they're leading the people. They're gone. They're leading the people uh, to the point of being gone. They've got to go. Uh, notice where they're left, though. So Joshua, the text says, hey, there was none of them left. We got them all. Well, except for in these three places, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Those are all Philistine cities. When David comes along the scene, we still have some, but a few, just a few giants left. Goliath being one of them, but there's also a few others. And David finishes them off. Joshua was supposed to finish them off. They didn't finish the job entirely. Uh, but David goes and finishes this off. But where is where is Goliath? Well, he's in, uh, is it Gaza or Gath? That's one of the G ones. Uh, and then there are some noted as being in the other Philistine cities, specifically Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. That's where they are. 
that's what the text tells us, that, that they're all hunted down to extinction by Israel with the exception of a few places. So Philist, the Philistines are going to have a pretty good, uh, a good sizable army here because they've got some of the last giants left. Uh, but it's not going to be good enough because God is on the side of Israel and he can take these things out. Uh, but it's just, it's just interesting that Joshua lets us know, hey, they're all gone except for this place. And so the next time we encounter them, it's in, that, it's in those places. Uh, in Joshua, we're also given the account of Caleb, which is just the coolest. Uh, he's 85 when he says this. It's great. Um, let's see. Yeah, uh, right there at the bottom of page four. So now give me this hill country. Caleb at 85... Uh, one of the two spies alongside Joshua that said we can take him. Here he is at 85, looking up at the, the hill, the mountain here. Joshua says there's still some more of those things up there. He says, give, give it to me. I'll take him out, and that'll be, that'll be the area where I live. So sure, go for it. So 85, Caleb is still like God's, God's going to give us the victory. It's just a cool section. Um, but notice what it says there at the end. This is verse 15 after the ellipses there. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. We've got places being named after these things because of course, like they're huge conquering things. Let's name a place after them. We name streets after people all the time. That's what they're doing here. They name areas after these things. That's important. We'll come back to that. Okay, top page five. Porter says 33... Almost 34, so like 12 minutes is what I got. Cool. Uh, notice also that we're in the hill country. Caleb's looking up <laughs> the hill country. That's where they are. That's where they always are. Uh, that, that is their area where their cities are, at least. It's not that they didn't travel outside of the hills or mountains, but that's where their cities are. Uh, also, this place is named after one of the leading giants in the area. Reputation, leadership, all of that on display here. They're not just things that exist, they're things that command power and have authority. Uh, and that's a real bad problem. Okay, devote to destruction. Uh, this is going to get difficult. <laughs> so we'll, we, we need to read, read over this again, uh, but we, we need to talk about it. Some have trouble with the idea of God, uh, the people of God completely destroying nation groups of people. Some, some don't. They're like, well, God said to do it, and there's a good reason for it, and so that's it for me. Okay, but others struggle with that heavily. Uh, I know that's what it says, but I, you know, I, how do I reconcile that with uh, a loving God and all of this? A lot of people cannot. And so they go, I'm so glad Jesus came because the Old Testament God was really... They can't reconcile those, those pieces. Uh, but Deuteronomy 2, 8 through 23 gives clear indication that this was the location of the Nephilim ancestors, uh, beings that God would not allow to exist with any form. This is the theme of devote to destruction. When that's, the nations that that is used for specifically, sometimes it's used generally, uh, but when we specifically have nations connected to this uh, word devote to destruction, uh, it is in places that we know these things exist. So it's not an accidental, why does God destroy some and drive some of the others out? The ones driven out do not have giants in them. The ones that have these things in them devote them to destruction. That's how it's used uh, explicitly. Uh, this idea is continued in Deuteronomy 2, 26 through 37 in King Sihon. Uh, we aren't told there that he is a giant. 
Uh, but we are told that the Amorites were King Sihon's at in Genesis 15. So it goes all the way back into Genesis. Why it's, it's really important to know Genesis. Uh, I think everything gets back there eventually. Uh, the Amorites, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's what Abram is told by God. That this will be your land, but not yet. Okay, so that's a long time from now. They're going to keep sinning and sinning and sinning, and then we'll deal with it. Uh, and King Sihon here is connected to them, and so are the giants connected to the Amorites, uh, and that's a problem. Uh, the Amorites themselves were noted as being super tall people, uh, and obviously fighters and all of this, uh, which for the Jewish reader gives them this thing of, oh no, that's bad. You know, they hear giant beings, their initial thought is, that's super bad. They never have a thought of, Maybe they're friendly giants. Uh, that's never there. It's, oh no, that's bad. Uh, they're noted for being you know, tall of stature, all of this. That's a problem. Uh, that's their thought process. And Amos even gives us that. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, those, are the, those are the two kings, Sihon and Og, or that okay. Rahab, Rahab uses as the list of reasons why Israel is so terrifying. Because talks, she talks about you know, clearing up the Red Sea, and then talks about destroying the kings of Sihon and Og. Which... Are kings for a reason. We we talked about Og already, uh, king over a massive area and fell before Israel. You know, doesn't make sense. <laughs> why why did that happen? And so the the phrase right is our hearts melted uh, before us because of the reputation of these things. But somehow Israel was able to pull these nomadic people took them down. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, they don't have a city and they're conquering. Doesn't feel right. Okay, uh, theme throughout the Old Testament here, middle of page five, of uh, the conquest anyway. These giant beings must be completely and utterly destroyed from the face of the earth. The word for devote to destruction uh, is a Hebrew word, karam. I'm not saying that right, but that's what it is. That's the word. Uh, and you have to understand, uh, by the way, Mount Hermon there should would have a K in front of it. I'm not going to say it, just in case, you know, whatever. It's hard to say some of these Hebrew words. For the Hebrew people, these words that sound similar are not, oh, you know, that they kind of sound similar, and so we could just maybe try to force them together in some way. It's not how their language worked. Uh, the way their language worked was, <laughs> these words sound similar for a reason, because these words are connected to each other. So this mountain of... Kerman uh, is connected to this idea of karam, which means devote to destruction. Why would those two things be similar? Well, for the Jewish people, this is the mountain where the covenant of these spiritual beings against God occurred. Then those things, according to Jewish belief, I'm not making this up, you know, you can disagree with it, but this is their belief. Then those things, after their agreement on the mountain, descended to go and create, ultimately, this offspring. And God says, these, these things from Hermon, let's Hermon them. Let's destroy them. They want to bring destruction, we'll bring destruction. Those ideas are connected together. Uh, and so all of these beings from, uh, from the mountain here, from those things that rebelled, God says, take them out. They've got to completely be destroyed. They have an evil origin point. Uh there's more to read there, but we need to move on to uh, 
to six. But it's very important we understand Israel isn't just going in, killing whoever they want or whoever happens to be in the way. Drive out these nations, but if they have these giants in them, take them out. They've got to go. Okay, David and the Nephilim. We'll skip over a lot of this. You have First and Second Samuel in there, uh, and those are giants being taken out. Uh, but they're, they're finished. They're, they're done here. We get no more giants walking around after this point. So Moses, Joshua, and David are all responsible for the conquering of these evil origin things. I wonder if at any point throughout the Gospels, there's somebody that is compared to Moses and Joshua and David and whether that's significant or not, uh, maybe for some other reasons than we think. And Jesus being uh, connected to all three of those individuals, and also coming through and fighting spiritual warfare while he is here in the things that he is doing, is significant. He is like those three individuals in more than just one way. Um, things are going to start coming together when we get into the New Testament. It's really cool. Okay, very bottom, because we have four minutes. Nephilim and demons. In the major prophets, there are often discussions of Israel's exile, the justice that God will bring for, uh, for them upon their enemies, the expectations of Israel's future hope. That's the theme of the prophets. That's what they do. Some of them are longer than others, but that's the theme uh, every time. And they use imagery that uh, will try to relay that message. Uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah do that. Uh, they take us back to the garden. They want Israel to have this hope of being in the garden of God again. Uh, Peter and Jude do that, top of page 7. Uh, in Second Peter and Jude. We're not going to read Ezekiel, because we talked about that last week, two weeks ago. We talked about Ezekiel recently. Uh, but Isaiah also brings up some language, and this gets interesting. Uh, Isaiah 14, 9 through 11, it's middle of page 7. Here the king of Babylon is said to be sent to the realm of the dead. Sheol, that's where all the dead go. Uh, where the dead spirits uh, are. Uh, he's become like them. So the king of Babylon has been defeated just like, he's like these things that were also defeated. The phrase dead spirits, or your translation might say shades, which is also a Greek idea. Um, for a reason, by the way. <laughs> Uh, the, these disembodied spirits that continue to exist in some way. Belief of their time, we get more into that. I'm not going to just leave you here. Uh, I will today. We'll come back to this. Uh, but they have this belief about, I mean, there's a reason when Jesus is out there on the water and they go, is that a ghost? Where, where is their context for even thinking that something like that could be a possibility? Where does that come from? They have a belief about how dead spirit things can work, that some of those things can continue to exist. Here's something very interesting. It's translated dead spirits or shades, but the Hebrew word is rephaim. It's connected to the word we know is used for giant things, but they're dead. We know that they're dead here in Isaiah. That's how they're being talked about. They are in the place of the dead. They no longer exist here physically, but the Hebrew word is the title that we just get throughout all the time before. So the king of Babylon, just like those things, is defeated and you know destroyed. Just like those giants were devoted to destruction, king of Babylon too. But the English gives us shades or dead spirits because they're dead giants. Uh, this gets weirder when we get into Enoch. Let's read the bottom of page 7. 
We have a minute left. I'm going to leave you with this. It's so funny. Uh, here you go. <laughs> uh, when they and their children have battled with each other, when they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them for 70 generations underneath the rocks of the ground until the day of their judgment and of their consummation, until the eternal judgment is concluded. Second Peter three or Second Peter 2 and Jude. Uh, man, this sounds an awful lot like that. I wonder if they read this book. Uh, but now the giants who are born from the union of spirits and flesh. See, that's their problem. These things are not supposed to exist. It's not how God created this to work. Uh, so the Jewish people would think there's something weird about them, and so the rules are different for them. Because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth, evil spirits have come out of their bodies. Because from that day they were created from the holy ones, that is, spiritual beings, uh, they became the watchers. Their first origin is the spiritual foundation. They will become evil upon the earth and shall be called evil spirits. Hey, in the Jewish mind, demons that exist are the dead spirits of the giants that existed in the Old Testament. They're doing the same things, causing chaos, working against God's good created order, uh, messing with people and all of this sort of stuff. And we even get some weird things about how demons don't like water, which I wouldn't either if my ancestors or myself were destroyed in a flood and I was allowed to continue to exist. It's a weird passage in Matthew, but it's there. And we'll talk about that next week because we're out of time. Uh, but Isaiah, Peter, Paul, Matthew, uh, Mark as well, they pick up some of these really weird ideas. But in the Jewish mind... I'm not saying you have to believe this today, but in the Jewish mind, they see all these demons and go, we know where those things came from. They've got to go. I hope something comes along, somebody comes along to finish off this spiritual warfare battle for them because demons are a real problem. Uh, somebody like Moses and Joshua and David, perhaps, uh, that can finish the fight against those things. Hey, these are not disconnected ideas. Uh, this is a thread that runs through. We'll come back to it next week. Let's pray together. Please read through this again before <laughs> next week. Father, we thank you for this time of study and worship we're able to have. We pray that uh, we come before you in worship, uh, uh, laying before you whatever may be uh, on our hearts, um, uh, not to ignore those things, but to give them up to you in, in worship and praise, knowing that you love us, uh, that here at this time, uh, we come to uh, praise the creator of the universe uh, that is uh, working all things for our good, that is uh, redeeming uh, the creation, inheriting the nations, uh, and that has made us a part of uh, the body and the, uh, the, the work uh, of uh, inheriting those nations. We thank you for being a part of the church. We thank you for the mission that we have. And we thank you that we can come to you uh, and lay before you our, our cares and concerns and hurts and troubles and know that you love and care for us uh, and we'll deal with those things. Uh, and we thank you for the hope that we have of ultimately being conquerors in you. We pray that we take, us, take that with us uh, throughout the rest of our day. It's in Jesus' name we pray.